Well, as we get started this morning, I'm going to give you a little bit of a disclaimer. Uh, If you were here last week, or if you were watching online at some point, you noticed there were some challenges with technology. It kind of threw me off a little bit on Sunday. Uh, We're having those same challenges today. It's having to do with the software that we're using. It's kind of going slow and wonky on us. But instead of me trying to do it, I've left it all up to Julian. So if anything goes wrong, it's really all Julian's fault this morning. I just, just as a little disclaimer, no one, no one pick on him too much, but um, just, just so you're aware. So mostly I think it might affect people at home. Maybe there'll be something on the screen a little bit slower or faster than it should be, but it should be okay. Other than that, I do have a very important question for you. Uh, and it's a question that I've been asked and maybe some of you have been asked at different points. Have you ever thought about writing a book? Yeah, someone, someone said, yeah, wow, we had a vocal response, which is rare but beautiful. You're always allowed to be vocal. Uh, some of you have. If you, you could even raise your hand if you want. You could raise your hand if you're at home online. No one will see you, so no one's going to hold you accountable to writing that book. It's okay. A lot of us have thought at some point, I can write a book. And I've been told that actually most people think that at some point they would like to or they have had the experience that could translate into some kind of book. Maybe it is a life story of some sorts. I know for some of you, you've done some amazing things, and so it might be a bit of a memoir that you're looking at. For some of you, you've worked in certain fields, so you could write a nonfiction in that field and be very accessible and and important for people to read. Some of us, we think we would love to write a tale of fiction, a story of some kind. That maybe it's based on experience, maybe it's based on, on your work, maybe it's based on something you've heard before and you think, I could write this story so well. Most of us at some point, I'm told, have thought, yeah, I'd like to write a book. And some of you may have even tried to write a book. And some of you may have sat in front of a screen and seen that cursor blinking at you and gone, there should be a book in here somewhere. And it doesn't seem to be coming out. Well, this morning I want to help you. I want to help you write the next great novel. Or the next great blockbuster screenplay. Because I've discovered, and maybe it's not a discovery, maybe it's something you all know well, but most things you read, especially in the area of fiction, or watch on the screen, have some kind of pattern to them. And it seems like that pattern is what gets people money somehow for the things they're writing or creating. And so here's what I think are the six simple steps for you to write the next great novel or screenplay, whatever you want. The first one is this. You start that everything is good. Everything is good. There are no problems at all. You create this idyllic situation where everything's good, everybody's happy, everybody's marriage is perfect, everybody's family's perfect, uh, everybody's job is perfect, everything is just perfect. You have this idyllic situation. It's kind of like a Hallmark movie, almost. Everything's perfect. But then, everything is not good. Something happens. Something happens that everything is not good. Everything that was good is no longer good. Maybe it's you lose that perfect job. Maybe it's that you have Christmas dinner and you guys fight over who made a better dessert. Whatever it might be, something is no longer good. And there becomes this 
unresolvable conflict. Nothing is going to fix it. Nothing. Nothing you do can resolve this unresolvable conflict. So you've gone from everything is good to everything is not good, and you don't know how to fix the situation. You don't know what could make it better. So part four is an unexpected hero arrives. Maybe it's that in your story, this perfect world, you're doing financially well, you lose your job, so there's this everything is not good. There are no more jobs. Somehow there's no jobs anywhere, so you can't find a way of living anymore, so you're going bankrupt, you lose your home, your, your spouse leaves you, everything is bad, and you can't resolve this yourself. And then you get a letter in the mail that your great uncle, who you never knew from Lithuania, died and left you a million dollars. And this unexpected hero shows up. Then this unexpected hero resolves the conflict. The conflict is resolved. And then everything's good again. This formula is pretty much every top-selling movie. Pretty much every movie. If you try and think, or even some of the best fiction novels that we love seem to follow some kind of pattern like this. Everything seems fine. You know, Frodo is in the Shire. Everything's good. And then the, everything's not good. They discover this ring. They got to do the, deal with the ring. There's an unresolvable conflict. And then Gandalf the White shows up. And all of a sudden, things get better. He fixes the situation. You watch the Avengers movies, the uh, Endgame. Everything's going bad. There's this huge war. Everybody's dying. And then all of a sudden, someone goes, hey, on your left. And all of a sudden, everything's good again. They resolve the conflict. Most tales of fiction follow some kind of pattern like this. They follow some kind of pattern where everything starts okay and it's going to end okay because we all like a good ending. But in the middle, something's got to happen to make it worthwhile. And so there's a conflict, something doesn't work out well, and then a hero needs to show up. The problem with these stories, while they make people lots of money, while you might be buying these and some of them are the best sellers out there, they're not real life. It's not how life works. You might find yourself in a dire situation where you don't know how to fix it. Chances are a hero is not going to show up and fix it for you. You may have lost your job and you're trying to figure out how can I keep paying my bills. Chances are that uncle, great uncle in Lithuania doesn't exist. You may find yourself going into debt, and because you're trying to make a great Christmas, your credit card bills rack up even more, and you are so far in debt. And you're thinking, how do I get out of this? Chances are that Nigerian prince who shows up in your email isn't a real Nigerian prince offering you a million dollars. The heroes don't show up in real life like we want them to. It might work great in fiction, but in real life, when we find ourselves in these times where everything is not good or there's conflict that we don't know how to resolve, it's not going to be resolved by someone else. Usually, we have to be tenacious, be patient, be resilient, and work hard to fix our relational conflicts, our working situations, our financial issues. Most areas in our life, no hero is showing up to fix everything except for one, and that one's already happened.
And that's the conflict between us and God. A lot of us don't realize sometimes that there is an ingrained conflict between us and the creator of the universe. And it's not something new, it's something incredibly old. And it's so old that we've seemed to forget about it most of the time. The story of Scripture starts in Genesis, and it says that in the beginning God creates everything, and it's good. And that as people are existing in God's good creation, and they are having a good relationship with him and good relationship with the rest of creation and with each other, people decide to go their own way and ignore God and create a conflict there. And then they become disconnected. Christmas is about resolving that conflict. It's when a hero showed up and fixed things for us in a way we couldn't do ourselves. Matthew chapter 1, if you're familiar with these scriptures, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah and says this, says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This passage is recorded in Matthew as a reminder that God long ago made a promise that in the midst of the conflict that we have with him, he will resolve it. And that is God with us. John in his gospel says it a different way, not quoting the past, but speaking into the present. He says this in John 1.14. says, The word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Eugene Peterson, uh, in his paraphrase, the message says it this way, the same passage says, The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, Like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. We saw God in the flesh. These passages remind us of when God showed up into that unresolvable conflict. God showed up in the midst of something we could not fix on our own. Unlike some of those best movies out there, nothing we would have done would have got us through this situation without God being present. There's a term that gets used in the Christian tradition for this. And it's a very important term. And it's what Christmas is about. The term is incarnation. Incarnation. That word, maybe it's familiar to you, maybe it's a new word for you, maybe it's not one you're familiar with, or, and you're thinking, it sounds like something I've heard before, but I'm not too sure. Uh, but that word means, essentially, to become flesh, to become incarnated. Carne is root in Latin, meaning flesh. So God becomes like us. He comes in the flesh. And what we anticipated long ago to happen through the prophet Isaiah became real in the person of Jesus. An important person in the history of the church outside of the Bible is Irenaeus the Lyons, who uh, was a, of Turkish descent and 
ended up preaching in the area of, of southern France. And he said this, he said, speaking of Jesus and the incarnation, he became what we are so that we might become what he is. We became, he became what we are so that we might become what he is. Irenaeus was fighting this idea with people. People had this idea that being human was inherently wrong. Anything to, that was physical or fleshy was wrong and evil and no good, and everything was about escaping that. Irenaeus came into the scene, and he was quoting through Scripture, and he came up with this statement that he became what we are so that we might become what he is, meaning he took on flesh, Jesus, so it can't be so bad. It's not what you think. A lot of us, we struggle with that. We think, you know, this world, this flesh, this who we are isn't good. But Jesus thought of it as good because he came into it. This idea of the incarnation that is really central to the purpose and meaning of Christmas is rooted throughout the Bible. Various authors in Scripture from the Old Testament, as we saw with Isaiah saying, uh, he will be called Emmanuel, like God with us. To the New Testament, authors like the Apostle Paul, who tried to explain or flesh out what it means that Jesus came this way. It is central to the understanding of who Jesus is and why Christmas matters. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 4. He says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. I'm going to read it again because this is a really important statement. This is where Irenaeus gets his idea. It says, but when, we, when the set time had fully come, meaning there was a moment in time that everything led up to, the moment that Jesus appears on the scene, the moment that we celebrate of a child who's put into a feeding tray, that we have on our Christmas cards, that we put under our Christmas trees, that moment was the perfect moment. Everything led to it. We could wonder, well, why that moment? And truthfully, I do not know fully why that was the perfect moment. But the way the story of God and his people was leading up to led to that moment. And Paul says that's in the fullness of time that this happened. It says that God sent his son, meaning Jesus is part of God, born of a woman, human flesh, born under the law, understanding that this is the reality of their world, to redeem those under the law, so to bring us to where we've always been meant to be, that we might receive adoption to sonship. God sent his son so we could be sons and daughters. He became like us so we could become like him. God sent his son. He took on flesh, born of a human, 
so that we who are born of humans can recognize and realize that that disconnection with God, that disunity that we have created, can be mended, redeemed in this child. And we can be adopted as sons and daughters. He became like us so we could become like him. The Apostle Paul says it again in a different way in Romans 5, 8. He says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the one who became like us paid the penalty for us so we could become like him, so we could be part of his family. That without him, we could not resolve this conflict. That There's nothing we could have done. There's nothing we will do that resolves this conflict. It's only him. And it's when we accept him for who he is, does that conflict become resolved. He became like us so we could become like him. Paul, throughout Scripture, kind of paints this picture for us that inspired Arrhenius for long ago, and it should inspire us still today, that you, in your very humanness, are deeply loved by God. That you, in your very broken humanness, are being restored by God. That you, who cannot really resolve the conflict that's in your heart between you and God, has been resolved by God. He became like us so we could become like him, so that we could be part of what God's been doing all along, to be part of his family. What does it mean that he became like us so we could become like him? Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, it's a very uh, old saying that he quotes, uh, one of the oldest sayings some people think of the New Testament actually. Says this in the Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 6, says, speaking of Jesus, who being in very nature God, some translations might say in very form God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So being in very nature and very form God, being God, didn't take the power of being God and let it go to his head. Didn't say, hey, well, I'm the creator of the universe, I can do whatever I want. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Uh, Some translations might say slave because the word is doulos here. Gave up every single right, essentially. Being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul quotes this very old saying of the church, this saying that was really one of the first creeds, the first statements that the church held to, this understanding that Jesus is God, and Jesus is God who takes on human flesh and becomes like us. And as he becomes like us, he doesn't take his godliness and let it go to his head. It doesn't say, well, I'm God, so I do whatever I want. You see, this is in direct contrast to some of the ancient myths that maybe you're familiar with. Stories of gods of old, like Zeus, who would come down to earth and do whatever he wanted when he came down to earth, so much so that he has multiple children everywhere, it seems, when you read Greek mythology. 
That's not the real God. This God comes to earth and doesn't say, hey, I've got all the power. Instead, becomes like a servant, like a slave, gives up everything for us. Becomes like us so we could become like him. Jesus became like us so we could become like him. He took on flesh, incarnation. He gave up his rights. He died on a cross. When we divorce Christmas from the cross, we miss out on why that baby came in the first place. As cute and wonderful as a manger might be, as as great as that little setup under our tree might be with the, you know, the animals and the barn and all that, it means nothing without a brutal execution instrument in the cross. And it's in that cross that that fullness of God demonstrates himself for us so that we can become like him. What does it mean to become like Jesus? What does it mean to, if he became like us, that we can become like him? Now, there have been people in history who would say, well, that means you become like a god. And in fact, they've created religions around this. That is not it at all. Jesus demonstrates in his humanity that becoming like a god was not the purpose. Jesus demonstrates and shows us that how we become like him is to become a child of the one God. Throughout Scripture, I think Jesus demonstrates what it is to be human and live like him. If you read the stories through the Gospels, you see how Jesus lived and acted. And uh, if you read Matthew, where we quoted from earlier, if you go further into that Gospel, you see he encounters the devil in the wilderness. And one of the things that's demonstrated in that encounter is that to become like Jesus is to root yourself in Scripture. Jesus found his identity in what God had already done and continues to do. So when he was tempted in the wilderness, as we find in the stories that are recorded in in the Gospels, he didn't go, well, yeah, I could do this. He found who he was in what God has already said and not just take it out of nowhere. If you want to become like Jesus, you root yourself in Scripture. And as you root yourself in Scripture, you realize that there are certain priorities that Jesus had. And if you read the Gospel, and I would actually encourage you this week, encourage you, read Matthew's Gospel. You can do it this week. You can start with Christmas, because that's what we're in. And then you move in to see what did this baby live like when he grew up. As he's rooted in Scripture, he recognizes that he begins with loving God just as we are to begin with loving God. That our identity is found in the one who created us. And when we find our identity in the one who created us, we're not uh, shifted back and forth trying to figure out who we are or trying to fit in or, or trying to do whatever we can to be loved. We love God because we know he loves us first. And out of that love, we love our neighbor. Jesus said that, All of Scripture can be summed up is that you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself. Absolutely. 
And then he does a great job of saying, well, who are your neighbors? And he says, well, you've got to love your enemies. That's your neighbor. And you've got to love the poor. That's your neighbor too. The idea of the poor in Scripture is one that uh, we gloss over sometimes in understanding how significant it was that Jesus loved the poor. Sometimes poor was not just financially poor. It was social outcasts like Matthew, who was incredibly wealthy. He was considered the poor. The poor in Jesus' day is anybody who was socially outcast from the dominant society. Love them. Yes, love people who are facing financial crisis. Do everything you can for them. But also love those that nobody else is loving. The other thing Jesus tells us to do if you want to really be like him is to deny yourself, which actually has a whole lot to do with loving others. In Luke's Gospel, in 9 verse 23, he says, If anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Jesus, who, being in very nature God, humbled himself like a servant or a slave. He denied his power. We live in a world that says, do not do that. Get what you want and get it quick. You deserve it. The way of Jesus says, no, that's not the way. It's not always getting your way. It's not always doing what you want. It's not always saying, this is what I believe, and so that's my truth. It's denying yourself. And the last thing, be consistent. That's the hardest one. It's really easy to deny yourself on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, forget about it. It's really easy to love your neighbor when there's nobody around, and then when people are around, to forget about it. The hardest thing to do in our life of following Jesus is to be consistent with who he has made us to be, like him. It doesn't mean that there's no room to fail, because we all do. There's lots of room for forgiveness in a life of following Jesus. But the most important sometimes thing to be is consistently who God invites us to be. And that includes rooting ourselves in Scripture, loving God, loving our neighbors that include the enemies that we've made or maybe we don't even know we have, the poor, the social outcasts, and denying ourselves and looking for others' good. The incarnation, the thing that people waited for for thousands of years, came in Jesus. Well, we may wait for him to come again, He came once, and in his initial coming, made us right with God if we choose to accept it, if we choose to embrace it. He became like us so we could become like him. The hope of Christmas is that at just the right time, God showed up in the story of human history so that everything could change and change for the better if we recognize that he became like us so we could become like him, and then we do it. 
my prayer for this Christmas, my prayer for Advent is that in this anticipation that you have, maybe all you're thinking about is let's just get to December 25th when we have our family get together. We've missed it for years. But in the midst of that, all you're waiting for, realize that Jesus' coming was for your every day to make you who you've always been meant to be. And that you can make choices in your every day to live that out. And in living that out, you can actually change people's lives forever. Let's pray. God, I thank you that at just the right time, you showed up. The truth is that you've always been with us and you've always been around us and you've, in fact, been in us in many ways. Uh, But at one point in history, people were so far from you that you came in the person of Jesus to make everything right again. That as we sang in so many Christmas songs this morning, as probably we've heard on Christmas radio stations or in our cars or even in Walmart, we've heard these songs that Christ the King was born in Bethlehem. And that you are the God who came near and dwelt among us. That you took on flesh to be with us to change everything. Holy Spirit, I pray that as we progress through this season and this advent and this waiting anticipation of your arrival, we recognize that you are here with us, that you are always with us, and we can embrace you as our Father, God, embrace you, Christ, as our Savior, and Holy Spirit as our Advocate. And we can live lives that demonstrate that every single day if we choose to follow you, Jesus. I pray this morning that we do choose that. Whether we've been saying we've been followers of Jesus for years and have done it well, that we continue. Maybe for some of us who are maybe more like me, you've done it well sometimes and you haven't done it well other times, I pray that we grow in our consistency. And for some of us who've never thought about it or maybe afraid to commit to it, that we take that next step. And Jesus, accept that you have made a way for us to be with God, to forgive us our sins through the cross, and that when we choose to be like you, to deny ourselves, to empty ourselves of what we feel are our rights, and follow you, we live like your kingdom is here every day. And we show that to the world around us. Wherever our step is, God, I pray we take it. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning, and I pray that as you go, whether you're here in person, whether you're online, uh, that you reflect on the significance of the season of the God who comes near to us and how that really does change everything. God bless you, and have a great week.